Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hiker, long-distance hiking trails. Planning your next multi-day backpacking adventure? Have you been searching the web for information to help you on your trip? Or are you trying to decide on the trail? Hiker has compiled the world's best multi-day and long-distance hiking trails into one easy-to-use platform. Hiker, that's H-I-I-K-E-R, is a mobile and web application that is designed for hikers by hikers. Yeah, that may sound cliche, but they are a team of hikers dedicated to providing users as much information as possible to discover, plan, and navigate their next backpacking adventure. The app will give you camping and accommodation information, resupply and amenity coordinates, and even some history about the area you're traveling through. And of course, this is all available totally offline to help save your battery life while out on trail. Download Hiker now for free from your app store, or head to Hiker, that's H-I-I-K-E-R, dot app to discover over 600 trails in the U.S., plus many, many more around the world. Just soaking in. I remember the feeling when I'm on those mountaintops, when I'm like feeling that hojol, just wanting to like bottle it and take it with you and like just wanting to feel every last drop of it and not waste any of it so that you can come back to life like knowing that at one point you were just like so full of that and so if I think for me also it reminded me a little bit that I need to also like figure out how to incorporate more of that into my life. Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, and you've probably noticed that the format of this podcast has changed, from its original heavier focus on gear to a greater emphasis on stories and experiences. We're focusing on the inspiration and the perspiration. And today's guest is Dara Did It, known off-trail as Dara Blackwater, who really did do it. This summer, she got herself onto the Colorado Trail, fears and all, with a little help from Hiking Prodigy and the life-saving application of Leucotape. In this episode, we talk about those fears and pushing through them, balancing your alone time with people time, learning trail culture, and how she might have broken her parents. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com, where you can also find show notes, photos, and links for any gear mentioned in this podcast. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Dara Did It. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You just finished the Colorado Trail. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Now, in, in your notes, you said that you had been wanting to do it for a while, mm-hmm. but that you had some fear related yeah, to it. What, what were those fears? Um, getting eaten by mountain lions <laughs> was near the top of the list. You know, being alone out there, I think because I'd never done a through hike, I wasn't sure how remote the areas I was going into were, um, how secluded they were. And it was, it's almost equal fear between 
being completely alone as in like, if you break a leg or something, you know, will you be found as well as fear of if there are people out there, are they safe people? And are they, you know, not looking to harm anyone? So kind of both sides of the coin there. You're literally reaching into my brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the joys of hiking as a single woman are just wonderful. Yes. Yes, they are. So how did the hike match up against those fears? Um, I realized very quickly that it's actually kind of hard to be alone out there for very long um, in the sense that you are kind of leapfrogging people all day, which is actually really fun because, you know, you hike for a couple hours alone and then you come to a water source and a bunch of people that you kind of are friendly with whose names you know and who know your name are there and they want to, um, you know, talk about if you saw that cool bird that was back there or if, um, you know, your water filter's working well or, you know, how, how you're managing blisters. And so there's actually this very cool camaraderie that um, I didn't really know was coming or would, was expecting. And so that was really fun and I liked it. Um, but there was plenty of time to be alone as well. You know, you have so much time to just be in your own head and think and, you know, process things. And that's a really lovely aspect of it too. And I think that's the part I was that I went for. And then the nice relationships were just a nice surprise. Did you, how do I want to ask this? You had said, again, in, in, I guess, Instagram, you had said that you had been wanting to do a through hike for quite a while. Yeah. Was it always the Colorado Trail that you wanted to do? Or did that just become because of 2020 and what it is the mm. most reasonable choice? Yeah. Um, no, it was always the Colorado okay. Trail. Um, I grew up in Farmington, New Mexico, and that was uh, it's about 40 miles south of the end of the Colorado Trail. And so I kind of grew up as, with this consciousness that it was there. Um, and then I've done parts of it because I also went to college in Durango, which is the terminus city. And so I knew people who had done it. I always, you know, just thought whenever I heard one of my friends had done it or met someone at a party that had done it, I was always like, oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. This person's incredible. So I've had it in my head for a really long time that I wanted to do the Colorado Trail. And when I met people who had to adjust their plans to do the Colorado Trail, I was always like, why was this not your first plan? I don't understand why you would plan for any other trail except the Colorado Trail, because I just love that area so much. Did it? Cause, I mean, I saw some of your pictures where you literally did a, like a 360 and it was just mountains. Like, there yeah. Was, well, yes, you were you were hiking in a bubble. But at that moment, it just felt like there was nobody else on Earth. Yeah. Basically. Definitely. I loved, I really cherished those moments. Those were really great. Now, the other thing that I loved in your documenting of your trip was talking about the history of the area yeah. and not just the white man's history of the area or particularly not the white man's history of the area <laughs> <Yeah>. specifically. <laughs> yeah. So I, 
you know, I'm indigenous. I'm a citizen of the Navajo Nation. And actually, I should have done this at the beginning of the podcast, but I'm going to go ahead and introduce myself for all of my Diné family members or you know, friends who are listening. And so, Dare Blackwater Yenishia, Besh Bachani Nishlin, Dotsina Jenny Bashishin, Ado Besh Bachani Dashiche, Ado Tach Ine Dashinale. And so that is essentially me going through all of my clans in, in Navajo. But um, I am Navajo and I grew up right on the border of the Navajo Nation. And I just graduated from law school and I studied indigenous law, tribal law. Um, they call it federal Indian law, which is a very antiquated, antiquated way to say indigenous law. And then I also study the digital divide, which is the basically the lack of Internet in indigenous communities. Um, well, lots of different places, but mine specifically in indigenous communities. And so I just really wanted to bring those two worlds together and really think about what is it that we're using connectivity for on the trail? I was interested to see where there would be connectivity on the trail, if it was just mountaintops or if there's actually a lot of intention by the either federal government or state government, who is ever land we're on to connect those areas. I was actually an intern in the Department of Interior. That's the federal agency that manages national parks. And I worked for the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs in the Department of Interior in Washington, D.C. on an internship. And I sat in some of these meetings where they were talking about broadband Internet and the priorities of the leadership um, on the federal level really were to like connect national parks and, you know, make sure that someone can post from Instagram from Yellowstone. And that was so effective. Offensive to me. This wasn't. This was a meeting with like these huge telecom moguls um, and the Secretary of Interior in the penthouse of the Department of Interior, overlooking Washington D.C. And they're using all this time and all these resources to talk about how to connect national parks. Which that's great. I love national parks. I want people to love and be able to show off national parks. But also. There are so many indigenous communities, indigenous people, students, workers who are trying to connect from their homes on tribal lands who can't do that because they don't have the resources to do that. And so I kind of just felt this dichotomy in me um, and I wanted to kind of incorporate that into my hike and utilize that platform and that hashtag, because as we all know, and why I'm here is that people really follow through hikers because it's gorgeous and hard and interesting. And, and so I really wanted to utilize that as a way to just tell a different story than a lot of hikers or people who follow hikers are used to hearing. Now, what is the hashtag? Um, just, you know, CT 2020, Colorado Trail 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what did you find out on the trail in terms of connectivity? The high points were connected just as I suspected most of them. Um, when you get close to a town, whether it be, um, even if it's kind of a, well, actually close to a, a town with money, you're going to get. Uh, so like Copper Mountain, we had good connection. Uh, Breckenridge, there's good connection. Whereas towns that are smaller and more rural and harder to get to are uh, like Creed was really tough. And then coming into Silverton, we didn't have any until we actually got to town because they have fiber connecting their town. So, you know, once you get in the hotel Wi-Fi password, you're solid. But before that, it's a little spotty. So, um, yeah, it really just depends on the area. 
So basically the connectivity, like almost like your phone is a sniffer. It, when it sniffs out the connectivity, it tells you where the money is. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I guess circling back to kind of where the, the conversation started, which is the history of the land before the white man came through. I know in, in the post that you had, you were talking very much about the Ute. Uh, that was their hunting grounds or a lot of the different tribe, Ute tribe hunting grounds. Yeah. But they're not the only tribe. That's right. So we started in Denver, outside of Denver, and that's Cheyenne and, and Rapaho. And I, there's a couple other tribes that whose names are escaping me right now. But um, once you start going south from there, it's pretty much the whole Colorado Trail is mostly the Ute Nation. Uh, there's three Ute Nations now. And, but before that, there were all sorts of different bands of Ute nations that have kind of separated into the three federally recognized tribes today. And so these different bands, um, as we were going through this Colorado Trail going south, you're kind of going into the different territories of all these different bands of the Ute nation. And that's just something that I don't think most hikers who hike that trail ever even really think about the fact that that was that that is native land and that once, um, you know, the, the Ute people just had that entire vast expanse of land to hunt in, to fish in, to um, recreate and trade. You know, a lot of the routes that we're going through, um, they are efficient ways to get through those mountains. And so we are not the first ones who are traveling those. You know, yeah. people have been traveling those since time immemorial because they were trying to go trade with other bands or they were going to, um, you know, different water sources or maybe even just exploring and out doing what we were doing and enjoying really nice days and nice summer days. One of, I guess you were talking about it too, but I know kind of even just from like my own hikes in different areas, there's very little conversation or there's very little note about historical information about who used to, who has used the land in the past or any of that. Has there been any conversation like at a federal level about sort of evening out the historical record of it? Mm. Um, nothing. I mean, it's always something that indigenous advocates are pushing mm -hmm. for and always part of our conversations. I think they tend to be in, kind of in an echo chamber because there's those arguments are easily squashed. And as an example, I'll use um, a lot of the name changes that we're seeing happen across the country whether it be the Washington football team, or I just posted an article this morning that um, Squaw Valley, the ski resort in California, is going is going to announce a new name next year after the spring ski season. And so those are all things like the um, owner of the Washington football team said on record that he would never, ever in a million years change that name. And now they're changing it. And so that the arguments were always kind of like, well, there's bigger issues. There's bigger issues. And it's true. People are dying of coronavirus on my reservation. Um, I think yeah. just today or maybe yesterday, they announced the first zero um, new cases since March. Um, so, yeah, we have really big issues to and challenges to work through in Indian country. But that doesn't mean that respect 
from the outside is not important and that these conversations about whether it be, um, you know, emotional reparations or just really respecting the sovereignty and respecting the dignity of indigenous peoples is always going to be a really important conversation conversation to have regardless of what else is happening. So I would say that it kind of falls along those same lines, that um, this is something that we will always think is important, that we will always push for. And a lot of times it falls on deaf ears because it just doesn't seem like the biggest issue. That said, I would love to see so much more signage on the Colorado Trail and all trails about the land and about the history. Um, And I think part of it also is that, you know, people don't want to think about that when they're out for you know, a nice hike with their family or when they're through hiking and, you know, just they want it to be glamorous and they want it to be beautiful. And they don't want to think about the fact that Native peoples were marched at gunpoint off of that land or slaughtered on that land by the federal government um, in order to in order to put up a, a sign that says this is a national park and in order to allow cows to graze on it or mining industries to extract from it. Um, That's not something that's fun to think about for anyone, especially indigenous people. Um, And yet it is a very real and very relevant part of the history of why we have those trails to walk on and why we have the opportunity and the privilege to be out there in the first place. Personally, I think it knowing those stories, knowing that history adds to the impact of what you're walking through. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it brings an appreciation for it, at least for me to a, to a different level. When mm-hmm. you think about, you know, the thousands and thousands of years and the thousands and thousands of people who have, who have walked here before. Yeah, definitely. And it's amazing when you do really let yourself reflect on that, which I did as much as I possibly could because that's what I was out there for. You feel it in a, in just as such a different way. And for me, how that manifested, because I, I don't know if it maybe was because I am Native or just because I felt so connected at different points um, because I know the history and it wouldn't matter whether I had that ancestry or not. But there were a couple afternoons where I just you know, I reflected on it and it just hit me like a truck and I would just be walking and bawling and just like really feeling the power and the grief and the beauty of those places because, I mean, that's where it happened and that's where these are the homelands and and they're so, so special and so powerful and those feelings are still out there for us to feel. My internet seemed to have gone. Was it yours? It looks like it. Yeah. I was okay. literally just calling into a black hole and I didn't figure it out until just now. Oh, okay. Sometimes mine gets spotty, but I moved closer to the router. So hopefully we're good now. Yeah. But that actually is a perfect segue into connectivity. Yeah. perfect. <laughs> it's like the universe wanted us to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. How How much of the reservations, the Navajo Nation and some of the other nations in the Four Corners area are connected or the residents are connected? Yeah, it just depends on the, well, it depends on how close they are to a city. Um, So like the Navajo Nation is so big. It's about the size of West Virginia. So there are some parts that are very connected and there are some parts that 
um, you know, there's, you can't even get cell service. So um, it depends on how close they are to a city, as well as just whether or not their tribal government has prioritized community networks. Like at before I went out to start the hike during my last semester of law school, I was working for a nonprofit that helps tribes set up community networks on their lands. And so that essentially means that once you get a couple resources like Spectrum, which is the radio waves that you need for a wireless connection, um, a license for that, as well as just really ordering equipment off the shelf um, and then getting backhaul, which essentially like connects your network to the greater Internet. Once you have those things, you can kind of start to build your own community network. And that's what we were doing out at Navajo. So those areas um, had a better connection when we left than when we started. But there are still a lot of areas that you, like I said, you can't even get a, you can't even make a call. And then there are some areas that are really well connected. So it really just depends on what work has already been done and, and what needs to be done still. I can only imagine the challenges right now in this pandemic work at uh, school at home, work at home world. Definitely. Yeah. The implications are huge. You know, we talk a lot about education because students are home. Um, We talk a lot about health because when you need to be seen and you don't want to potentially be infected if you're high risk or if you think that you have the virus and you don't want to go and spread that, um, telehealth becomes a huge, huge asset. Um, and then we talk a lot about economic development. I just wrote a paper that will be published by UCLA's Journal of Indigenous Law about how the how Internet affects the economic development or just economic health of a community as far as being able to work from home, being able to look for jobs, being able to apply to school that will uh, apply to programs that will help you um, get better jobs or a job that you want or whatever. So those are huge. But then there's also just entertainment. You know, there's like we're all home right now and we're all shows and looking for things that we just want to fill our time with. And just to help us kind of relax and decompress from how stressful the world is right now. So all of those have probably greater importance now than they even did before. Yeah, I know. I, I cannot even count the number of times that I have said out loud Thank God it is pandemic 2020 because I can binge watch anything streaming. Yeah. You know, but we take for granted that everybody can do the same. Definitely. Yeah. When you set your sights on, did you set your sights on doing the Colorado Trail or, or making it a reality before you graduated from law school or after you had graduated from law school? I think it was right before graduation because, you know, it's something I've always wanted to do. And I had thought about it, but I decided not to. Um, This was maybe last year sometime, because the bar exam is in July. And so generally, you're studying for the bar exam six weeks before up until you take it. And there's just no way that I could have hiked the trail and passed the bar exam, most likely um, this summer. But The Arizona Supreme Court decided to go ahead with the bar exam, which I thought was just an absolutely bogus decision to make. (laughs) Um, And so as kind of an act of 
um, defiance, I guess. I was like, I'm not taking that. I'm not doing it. You can have my $500 that I paid for this and I'm going to go hike the Colorado Trail. So I decided to do it and felt great about it. And then when I was in Breckenridge, when I finally got internet to check my email, I learned that they were offering an October bar exam. And so now this year is panning out where I'm going to do both. I hiked the trail and now I'm studying for the bar and they're doing it remotely. So I'll be able to do it from, you know, my living room, which will be nice. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) Yeah. Much, much better than going in for it. How much hiking had you done previously? And I I would assume it would have been previous potentially even to law school. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Time in law school. Yeah, I grew up hiking. I've always been a runner. I'm a tennis player. So I've always just enjoyed being outside and being active. Um, And I love the mountains. So when I thought first about doing the Colorado Trail, it was actually a couple summers before law school. But I wasn't really feeling empowered to do the full thing yet um, because I hadn't ever backpacked alone before. So I actually kind of set myself up for success that summer, which I guess was maybe four or five years ago, by doing a couple, um, well, doing many backpacking trips alone into just like Colorado wilderness that I was somewhat familiar with, you know, around Silverton or around Telluride, Mm -hmm. and just kind of gained confidence. And that helped me so much because when I, I remember the night before I left on the Colorado Trail, that's what I was thinking back to. I was so nervous. I was kind of freaking out, just having to breathe and center myself of like, what have I done? And I, but I thought back and I remembered, you know, I've done weekends by myself before and I know that I can do this because I've already kind of done it before. And so, you know, even though I'm afraid, I know that I know how to do this and I have the skills required. But beyond that, I also walked 1400 miles across China in 2015. And that was with another woman, Anne Liang. She and I walked to raise money and awareness um, and kind of be advocates for people with disabilities in China and really everywhere. And because we both volunteered for organizations that um, you know, helped and connected people with disabilities with resources or with each other. And, and we just really believed in that cause. And we decided that the best way to talk about it and raise money for these organizations was to do this big hike. So yeah, that was 1,388 miles, um, 2,235 kilometers across China from Zhongshan to Beijing. So I also had, uh, you know, a, a lot of confidence from that of I can, I know physically I will be able to uh, walk this far. It's just at that point it became a question of do I have the camping skills? And then because I had practiced a few years ago, I, I knew that I could hopefully bring them together. How was the gear for you? The gear was definitely the part that I felt the most nervous about because, one, I didn't have the money to drop, you know, $1,500 to drop on everything that I needed because a lot of my, I didn't, I think I backpacked twice during law school, maybe just once actually, because it, no twice, um, because it was just so busy. And I was between Tucson and Washington DC 
for three years and just running around like a maniac and I didn't have time to backpack really. And so I, I didn't have a lot of gear. Some of my gear was just really old and I knew that there were things that I needed that were more compatible with, you know, what I was trying to do. And so I did research, I took recommendations and I asked for help and that was that was the way to do it. Um, a lot of my Instagram followers really came through. I made a wish list and I had people who knew more about it than I do review that wish list and make changes. And, and then I had a few really good conversations. One with a friend of mine, you might know, um, who goes by hiking prodigy Mm, and he helped me so, so much. And I was just on the phone with him a couple weeks before going like, okay, but what about this? But what if this happens? And And he was like, oh yeah, that's happened to me. This is what you do. And like, here's a, a good tip for you. And you know, they say this, but don't believe them. You should do this instead. And that was, I swear that made my trip because it was so, so helpful. Even though you're not necessarily going to be calm when you first start out, it probably was this layer of almost like a big brother over over your hike, kind of like, okay, he's saying that it'll all be okay. It'll all be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you use that analogy. Um, it makes me think of my first day. I flew up to Denver from Durango and my br- my actual big brother picked me up from the airport and we had dinner. And then I think it was not the next day, but the day after he took me to the trailhead and he walked with me for maybe the first five miles or so. And I had so much excitement and confidence and, um, you know, just joy starting the trail with him. And then I remember the the moment that he left, I was like holding back tears because that feeling was like when your parents leave you at kindergarten for the (laughs) first time and you're like, am I going to die here? Like, will I ever see them again? You know, and so that I think that's also a very important part of the experience is just getting rocked a little bit, whether it's like that beginning fear and nervousness or whether it's, you know, being in your tent after you've been rained on all day and you're like trying to avoid getting hypothermia, like it's important. And I think there are a couple moments where everyone gets rocked and there's no amount of planning and there's no amount of, um, you know, gear choices other than just keeping it all dry that can save you from that moment or prepare you for that moment emotionally as far as like it really just needs to be you being like I am prepared for this and I can do this and I'm not going to die and then just knowing that you're going to be okay and so those voices in my head whether it be thinking about my ancestors doing the same things um, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago and getting through that or whether it be just like, like literally my brother's presence being there with me in the beginning or having hiking prodigies, you know, voice in my head and, and his preparation in my backpack. It, it all helps and it all comes into that empowerment where you are 51% sure that you can do it. <laughs> and that 1% is so important. <laughs> yeah. Did you find as, as each day progressed, as you accomplished, as you overcame different challenges, that the 51% went up to 55%, went up to 60%, went up to, like, it, it compounded on itself uh, yeah. in terms of your confidence? Yes. 
Definitely. I would say after the first two days, I was really after the first day, I was like, oh, this is like a hike where you just don't go go home. (laughs) 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 Like I'm just day hiking, but I'm staying. And so once I kind of just wrapped my head around it in different ways and it started to feel more familiar to me and not like this big crazy thing that I had kind of talked it up to be, then I just started to be like, oh, okay, this, this is my new normal. And this is what I'm doing now. And that's, and I can do that. That's perfect. What turned out to be your favorite piece or pieces of gear? Hmm. I switched halfway from the Sawyer mini to the Sawyer squeeze, the full sized one. And that made me really happy because the Sawyer mini was just so slow. Like it would have probably been great for a day hike, but after I switched, it was like, oh my God, I'm like not holding people up when I'm at a water source and this is perfect. Um, so the the Sawyer was really great. And I just popped it on a smart water bottle, which was really useful. And I really, I have this like bandana that I wore pretty much every day that I loved because it was, you know, kept me warm in the mornings when you're just getting started. And then I would dip it in every water source that I passed if it was hot and just put it either on my head or on my neck or whatever. And I really loved that. Oh, and my sleeping bag. I am so enlightened equipment. uh, They sent me a zero bag and it is the nicest thing that I own right now. (laughs) It's like, oh my gosh, just like being in that at the end of the day was so comforting and just so lovely. And so that might actually be my favorite. Was it a sleeping bag or a quilt? It's a quilt. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Had you ever used a quilt before? No, they actually talked me into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I talked to a rep and uh, they, and I wasn't sure because I was like, is it warm enough if you're not, you know, like zipped in? Like, I like to be like a mummy. Like, I just like, I don't want to move. I barely want to be able to breathe. And I want my head, you know, everything tucked in. But they were like, no like, you're going to like this. And I was like, I don't know. And it actually was a risk because I think that was like two weeks or a week and a half before my hike. And so I was, I didn't have time to get something else if I didn't like it. And I didn't actually even have time to go on a uh, test hike right before because I was working for a federal judge and I was trying so hard to finish um, some paperwork, uh, a motion before I left. And so I was just like, all right, I'll take your word for it. I hope it works. And (laughs) they're very good at what they do. And they're very good at making sleeping bags that make people happy. So it was perfect. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I mean, that's honestly saying something because the Colorado Trail is very high elevation. Yeah. So I'm assuming that it probably got a little chilly at night. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was very, very cold some nights. And um, there was one, the uh, scenario I alluded to earlier, as far as just being really cold. There was one day I was pushing really hard to get to Silverton because as far as advocacy goes, It was effective in the sense that I was asked by a conference called RightsCon, which is an international human rights conference. They asked me to do an interview for their virtual conference this year of Jessica Rosenworcel, who is a commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission. And um, 
So I had it in my head, like, I just need to be at internet by this day. And I didn't know whether that meant hanging back somewhere, hanging back in Creed for a couple days or pushing to Silverton. Um, And I decided to push to Silverton. And so there was this storm where we got rained on for like two days straight. And it was so cold and we were so high. You're above tree line for like two days um, that at the end of the second day where I normally would have maybe stopped and set up camp in the afternoon, I ended up pushing um, with a friend of mine. We finally camped at like, I don't know, six or seven that night. And we were just drenched from head to toe. And we were making sure throughout the day that like our bags were staying dry because that was literally the only thing that was going to keep us alive that night. We were out in the middle of nowhere was having a dry sleeping bag and a down jacket. And so we were completely drenched from head to toe, set up our tent as fast as possible through that sleeping bag and down jacket in there and just like got warm as quickly as possible. And um, yeah, it's, it's something that I will never forget because you just, you know, it really is dangerous at certain points. And so you really do have to um, make sure that you do have the right gear and that you are taking care of it appropriately. Otherwise, it yeah, it can get a little little scary. A little sketch. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it also makes me think, you know, I mean, we have all of this great modern technology and all of this, you know, great goose down feathers and the packing and, and all of that stuff. But I guess going back historically, you know, a lot of people went through those mountains without all of that fun stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and you just have to appreciate human ingenuity. Definitely. <laughs> human ingenuity and, and human perseverance. True. Very true. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, a buffalo quilt or, yeah, buffalo pelt might be war- just as warm, but it's also going to be way heavier. And <laughs> that's what they were carrying. Yeah. <laughs> And in some respects, way more difficult to get. <laughs> Definitely. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. How much of the trail did you hike by yourself versus, because you, you've said we a couple of times and you were just saying that you were hiking with a friend. And I know you also hiked with a dog for a little while. Yeah. Yes. The I did significant portions, I think both ways, I would say. Because like I said, you're just always, around people. So if you want to hike with people at some point, then you can kind of hop in a group or just talk to someone for an afternoon and hike with them and kind of get a life story. And then you can also choose to just, you know, hike by yourself and not see anybody for hours and hours and hours at a time. Having my dog, I will say though, is was so much fun. It hiking with a dog is just such a different experience and it can be a positive thing and it can be kind of a frustrating thing um especially going into a town. It can be really frustrating because you know you're trying to shop and uh what do you do with the dog? You know, my dog is she was trained enough to just kind of sit out well she was tired enough. I <laughs> <laughs> actually um, but and that was an issue in and of itself because she's getting a little bit older. She joined me about halfway through and then she was with me for, I think, about 10 days. And then she was starting to struggle limping a little bit. And so my parents came and they picked her up. 
But um, yeah, it was just a different experience. And she brought so much joy to it that I wasn't otherwise uh, necessarily feeling as far as just like, you know, dogs are the best, right? So just like silly faces or like having to tell her not to chase the marmots or um, just like having somebody to, she's like a little heater under the quilt bag. So it really changed the experience. Um, so yeah, there was big portions of being alone, big portions of having the dog and, and hiking with others. It sounds like when you first went out, you, it was, it was going to be a solo hike or a quote unquote solo hike. Yeah. And then you started being around the other groups and the bubbles of people that are hiking. And I'm sure that there are tramleys on that trail, like there are tramleys on every other trail, if there's enough people around. Did you find yourself making a a choice about, so today I want to be alone, but, you know, tomorrow, I want to hike with people, I want to be around people have conversations, that kind of thing? Yeah, I would even say that it was like, you know, hour to hour into <laughs> moment. <laughs> there were, you know, there were times when I was with people, like I'm even thinking, even by the first night, Jul- I started on July 1st, which is such a popular ta- start date. And I wasn't really thinking about how that would manifest as far as the, the first campsite. And so I was so nervous about being alone. And actually, the first day, I really didn't see that many people. I maybe saw a dozen people. And um, I was really nervous about being alone. But as soon as I got to the campsite, there were so many people at the first river that it was actually hard to find a campsite. And these people invited me to stay on in kind of their area, which was to me felt a little bit intrusive, but they invited and there was no other place to go really. And so it was kind of like, oh man, like, is it going to be like this the whole time? Because (laughs) I was afraid to be alone and now I kind of want to be alone. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's, I just kind of tried to listen to whatever sounded fun and whatever I wanted. And, and that was really the joy of it because, um, I didn't necessarily get to do that in law school for three years. It was, just vast, um, you know, vast times being alone, you know, studying or something like that. And then I remember this feeling of coming back to society and almost being a little bit like this is, I mean, coming back to society after studying and being like overwhelmed because I was alone for that long. And so it was nice on the trail to have people around when I wanted to have people around and, um, and then just kind of think my thoughts later. (laughs) (laughs) did you get a trail name out there um sort of (laughs) i i did you accept a trail name out there yeah i resisted trail names (laughs) um i yeah the trail name that was a tough that was a, a tough thing for me to wrap my mind around because when i started i had no idea that trail culture was such a thing and so there was there was so much that people would say to me or so much that people um, would ask. And I was just like, I don't understand what language you're speaking. I don't understand what these, mean, these <laughs> words mean uh, because I've never heard them before. And and so it was I didn't even realize that I was kind of stepping into a different culture. And so when I was meeting people and they were giving me these names, I was like, I like, (laughs) what? And so 
I didn't have one. And it was it's kind of a funny thing when you don't because you just say like, well, I'm Dara. And they're like, and, you know, like they're like, <laughs> yeah. expecting and something. next. But, but come on. <laughs> yeah. And so I think the closest I came to getting deemed a trail name was um, my this guy that I was hiking with at the time, um, Luke, he was introducing me to some people that he had been hiking with before. And, uh, or I guess over the top was introducing me to these other people. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, I, they, they asked me if I, my trail name and I said, I didn't have one. And then over the top goes, oh, well, you know, he was bragging about me. He was like, well, Dara did a, a marathon day the other day because I accidentally hiked over 26 miles because it was raining and I didn't want to stop. And so I, he was like, ah, I did a marathon day. And they were like, what? We're complaining about these 18 mile days and you did a marathon day and that's amazing. And so they said, well, whenever we're complaining about an 18 mile day again, we'll just remember Dara did it. And so I was <laughs> like, okay, if I have to be deemed a trail name, I guess Dara did it is like the most positive one because I also like people get ones that are like not flattering. And they, like, I've heard a couple where I'm like, you really just let people call you nipples. Like why? (laughs) So yeah, I, that's something that I just didn't fully wrap my head around, but I, I like the clever ones and I like the funny ones. There were definitely some that made me giggle. Yeah, no, trail names seem to, a lot of them seem to stem from some of your stupid moments on trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or triumphant ones, but yeah. Or triumphant stu- ones. What's your trail name? I don't have one. I have not actually done a thru-hike yet. You haven't done a thru-hike? Okay, nice. I was supposed to this year. I was supposed to be on the PCT oh, this year. Man, the PCT. Yeah, so pandemic-wise, I didn't make it out, and then... We'll, we'll see what happens, but I was going to try to just do like a little road trip from Lone Pine, which is kind of the Mount Whitney area down and just, just yeah. to see the tra- trail, like to touch the trail. Right. But California is burning right now. It is so smoky. It is apocalyptically smoky. So I'm, I haven't totally given up on that idea yet, but I'm not hopeful. At, yeah, at the, the rate that the fires are going. So we'll see. That makes sense. That's going to be a good one, though. I've got my eye on Mount Whitney. Um, that sounds like such an incredible hike. And I've got my eye also on the Tahoe Rim Trail. Yeah. Um, my yeah. friend, trail named Sonny, he uh, was on the Colorado Trail. And then he just texted me today a picture of him at the terminus of the Tahoe Rim Trail. And I didn't even know he was doing that one. And I guess he made it out right before they closed the park. So um yeah, that's it is such a rough year for hiking and if you can time it right then it's perfect, but that's a hard thing to do right now. Yeah. I know. I, I know earlier in the season once people started to once it started to open up a little bit, I was seeing people I, I almost going to call it trail bagging. Like they would hit miscellaneous trails that were relatively close Tahoe Rim and yeah. the Colorado Trail, maybe the Arizona Trail, maybe the you know, the, this trail or the, that trail trails that I've never even heard of before, but somewhere to get out on the trails, touch, touch the dirt, so to speak. Yeah. Just do little pieces. I felt for a lot of the uh, North founders who were doing the continental divide trail because they were having to really do a lot of accommodations this year, as far as 
routes being closed because of the virus. And just I, I think they did a lot of road walking this year, which sounded kind of rough. And yeah. so yeah. whoever did CT or CDT this year, you know, they they have a, a an amount of grit. I'm not sure that I even want to aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> How did a pandemic year affect your hike? Did it affect it your hike really? Yeah. Well, yes. If you're doing it right, it affects your hike in the sense that you're going into small communities that have the same considerations that a lot of tribal communities do as far as they don't have health services or like robust health care often um, local. And so that to me meant that I needed to be a lot more intentional about not putting those communities at risk as I'm coming into them and, you know, re, uh, re-upping my resources. And so it just meant, um, prob- you know, not, I didn't go out like as far as, you know, going out and drinking or anything really on when I stopped at those communities some people did and and that was their choice and their you know economic arguments for that mm-hmm. of uh, you know well they the wait staff hasn't gotten tipped well all summer or whatever and uh but for me the best choice was to just be as careful as i could going into these communities and um you know obviously wearing a mask and just not being just not being a dick so it affected my town days definitely as far as my hike you know being out there I think it was really nice in the sense that it's not really something that I ever considered that I had to consider. And that was such a privilege to be out there. And just you got to kind of forget for a week, a week at a time that the pandemic was even a thing because you just aren't having to really think about it because you're only touching yourself and, you know, a water source. And so it's just really nice. It was really, really nice to be away. You're not being bombarded by the news. You're you're not having to think about health or risk or stats or anything really all the time. And so it was a huge privilege to be able to escape from that this summer. That does sound very delightful. Yeah, (laughs) it was. Mentally relaxing, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like, while you were out there, actually, stepping back from that question, how was hitchhiking for you? Oh, I hate hitchhiking so much. <laughs> if I never hitchhike ever again in my entire life, I will be so stoked. I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> I first, like, I think maybe I just have really negative connotations of hitchhiking because, like, hitchhiking, I'd only ever seen, like, on the reservation because that, that's how a lot of people get around and you just hear like some really it's one, it's a very common thing to do. And so it's there are a lot of instances where people hitchhike and it's absolutely fine and nothing ever goes wrong. But there are some like really scary things that happens to some people when they try to hitchhike. And so having heard those stories growing up, I just had really negative connotation in my head of hitchhiking. And so to do it. And I'm not sure. I'm trying to think if I ever did it alone. I think that was one of the times that I was always kind of like, I would like to be with another human at this (laughs) moment in my hike. Um, So I think I was always always with someone. That was another thing that made uh, having a dog hard, too, because some people just don't want a dog in their car or don't want to pick up a dog. But uh, sometimes it takes 
a really long time. And by the time you are at a road and you're like, oh, my God, civilization, French fries are so close. And then it takes you an hour to get a ride. It's like, can I just call an Uber? I hate this so much. Like not I love having a car so much. And I love I love my car. I love the freedom and safety and everything good that it brings to my life. And so to just like be on the side of a road, not having my own wheels and not having really like autonomy. I was just like, this sucks so bad. Um, and then also, you know, there's the fear of getting murdered. So there's, there's... <laughs> there's a small fear of getting murdered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that aside, how were the hitchhikes? Mostly, mostly very nice people picked me up. Um, there was one that was that I wish that I hadn't taken um, because as soon as my friend Tyler and I got in the back of this truck, we realized that the driver and the other passenger had been drinking because we saw a bunch of um, empty beer cans and um and he was driving like an absolute maniac probably going like 90 miles down this mountain pass um 90 miles an hour down this mountain pass and um just like veering almost to the edge of the road like way too close way too many times and i i really was like just preparing myself of like all right well this is probably it for me but it's been fun and that's all right <laughs> um but most of the people that picked me up were sober and kind and, uh, you know, just wanted somebody to talk to or whatever, which was, which was nice to, to hear your story. Exactly. Being on the trail. Yep. Had you heard before being out on the trail, had you heard about trail angels and trail magic and that type of stuff? No, not at all. And, um, I think maybe because of the pandemic there wasn't, or maybe I just timed it wrong, but there wasn't a ton of that. There was one woman who, I think tiny clarinet was her name um, or her Insta handle, but she came out and she had Gatorade and oranges, which was so clutch and so awesome. Um, and maybe the CT just is a different culture than some of the other through hikes. Like the, I heard just these incredible stories from the AT and the PCT of, you know, people doing like full on cookouts or like, you know, yeah. cooking omelets for like this massive group or whatever. And we didn't really get any of that. Um, which was fine, but it was really cool to hear the stories of the trail magic and experience a little bit of it myself. Actually, one day my parents came out and we did a little bit of trail magic. They brought some um, drinks and my mom made cookies. And so some, they got to meet some of the hikers that I'd been leapfrogging for weeks at that point, um, which was fun. What was your parents' reaction response to you saying, I want to go out and hike the CT? By myself. <laughs> yeah. I think after I came home, you know, five years ago and said, I'm moving to China in a month by myself <laughs> and deal with it. I think after that, like I broke them. And so, you know, anything that I say from that moment, moment forward, they're just like, okay, fine. Like, <laughs> we know, we know that it's not gonna anything that they say at this point is not going to change my mind when I, before I did the hike across China, um, my dad asked me how much I expected to raise fundraise for the uh, I was walking for a foster home for children with disabilities. And he was like, OK, well, how much money do you expect to raise? And I knew what he was asking. It was how much do I have to pay you um, to donate to this orphanage so that you don't actually do this hike? And I was like, Dad, it's 
just not enough, you know, I'm, I'm doing it. And so they are such troopers and they are so supportive and they are so patient. Um, and yeah, they're as soon as, you know, there's always a, a phase of how are you going to be safe and what, you know, how, how are you planning to, um, make sure that this goes smoothly? And then after that, then it's like, okay, we're in, you know, they came to Salida and we fished and I had an off day with them and that was really fun. And then they came to Creed to pick up Kai and then they were at the end to celebrate with me. So they're definitely my biggest fans and the best supporters I've got. How, how would you say that the trail changed you? Hmm. Do you feel like the trail changed you at all or your experience of being on the trail changed you at all? It definitely was empowering in the sense that anytime that there's fear and you overcome that fear um, and learn new skills throughout that process, I think we are just better, more well-rounded humans coming out of those experiences. Um, So in those ways, it was really important for me and really valuable because those that empowerment and those skills then transfer to other parts of your life, whether it be relationships or whether it be work um, and advocacy or leadership or, you know, whatever skills those are, even just to remember to breathe and remember Mm -hmm. that something, something big and important and deep outside of the daily stresses that we feel in, you know, normal life, whatever normal life is. But having those memories, just kind of, I I think it just becomes part of your DNA. And it's something that you can always reflect back on and go, oh, you know, this problem that I'm facing today that is stressing me out is not actually that big, because I, you know, I'm not in the back of a truck where I might die, or I'm not getting hypothermia. And therefore, you know, it gives you a different perspective um, on the things that stress you out, because uh, they're not actually as big as some other things that you've faced. You can, you can always point to the walking in the rain for two days and exactly. It's not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Relatively speaking, (laughs) I think I'm actually going to survive this. (laughs) Right. Right. Come out the other side. Yeah. What was some of the best advice that prodigy gave you that helped you on the trail? Yeah. He, he told me, you know, I think it in some ways it was the things that he didn't say in the sense that like he talked to me as if almost as if I had already done it in the sense of like there was never any question in his mind that I was going to do it and I was going to succeed. And, you know, he just all he would I think in his mind, all he was doing was just making sure that I had the tools or um, that I wasn't going to make the same mistakes that maybe he made when he started or he's seen other people make or whatever. Um, And so it wasn't like this in my head, it was like this big, like, okay, what do I need to do? Like, what, like, how am I going to do this? And for him, he was like, yeah, I don't know. Just go out there, have have fun, uh, take a Ziploc bag to gather water in shallow sources. You'll be good. You know, and it was just like, that's it. (laughs) He was like, yeah. So um, yeah, just, I think, that's why it was cool because I, what I wasn't saying to him was, I don't know if I can do this and I need you to tell me whether or not I've got it. 
And he didn't even address that. He just assumed that I was that I had it in the bag and and that he just was facilitating that a little bit. So yeah, just confidence. You you borrow his confidence in you until you find your own? Yes. I yeah, I would say it was that's a, a fair characterization. Um in the beginning, it definitely like most things in life was a little bit fake it till you make it and and figure it out along the way. So, yeah. What was, what was one of those things that you figured out along the way? Um, camping alone. It was camping alone has always been scary to me and probably always will be scary to me because there's just, I think it's just like that basic human, like it's dark and scary and I don't know what's out there. The, you know, what you realize quickly on the trail is you're too tired to be scared most of the time. And so, but it it was like the moments when you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to pee and like <laughs> there's only darkness outside and it's like, all right, well, I have to pee whether like maybe I'm going to get taken out by a mountain lion. And then you realize like, mountain lions and serial killers like don't have the energy to stalk you and like sit outside of your tent and wait for you to pee to kill you like you just it's like you get out there and you realize like oh this is actually ridiculous and I'm absolutely fine but that said like there will probably always be a little bit of nervousness for me about that scenario but it's been fine a hundred percent of the time so far so knock on wood (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny that you say that because it made me flash back. I, I grew up in a small town in, in Washington um, and actually outside of a small town in Washington. And we had the barns where the sheep were and then across the road was the house. And even just running in the dark area, which was across the road, was always the what am I not seeing? What's in the shadows? What's going to get me? in this 50 feet of <laughs> space. Yes. Yeah. That's where the boogeyman lives. That's where Everybody boogeyman knows that. <laughs> Everybody who's smart knows that. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't believe that you're just being irrational and kidding yourself. Exactly. What was one of the toughest moments for you out on the trail? Mm. There are so many different aspects of that word, whether like physically toughest was probably the first, maybe the first day, day and second day where um, I was getting blisters really bad. And I got blisters on when I hiked in China as well. Um, I called it zombie toe because my feet just are in such a way where like my little toe always kind of gets pushed under my other toes. And so it just like the friction just tries to literally rub the toe off of my body. And when I was in China, people were like really concerned because it literally like my toe was just a wound. And so I was trying to avoid that this time, but it started happening again. And and then I kind of got scared where I was like, okay, like this, this could end it. Like what, what if it gets infected? Like, what am I going to do? 
And um, and then my a new friend, uh, Origami is his trail name. He just came bopping up the trail and he was like, oh, well, just throw some Luco tape on it. And I was like, what? They throw what? <laughs> and he was like, Luco tape. You don't have Luco tape? And it just kind of gave me like this, like, do you even hike? And so then he shared his Luco tape with me. And from that moment forward, blisters were not an issue for me at all. Um, so physically, it was that because, you know, even though blisters are like not the worst thing that can happen to you out there as far as like, you know, having a broken leg or something, they can definitely make your hike more miserable and um, potentially kind of dangerous if you do get infected. So that was tough for me, for my body. Um, and then just being sore, you know, your body just hurts a lot of the time. But then emotionally, I think it was Coming out of law school, I felt really guarded because there is kind of like this um, very competitive spirit about that environment and it can get pretty toxic. And so I learned throughout that process to just really keep my boundaries up and my walls up and not really talk to anybody about anything I was doing, which sounds horrible now that I'm saying it, but that's really something that you have to learn um, both in law school and D.C., and so coming into this environment where everybody was like so warm and, you know, wanting to talk to you about gear and what's your trail name and where are you from? And I was it was like really hard for me in the beginning because I and I was described by people who later became my friends as uh, being prickly in the beginning because I was like, why do you want to know that? What do you like? What do you want from me? Why you exactly. What are you trying to get from me? You know? And then it kind of took me a little while just to like ease into that culture. But also, I will say, I guess maybe in my defense a little bit, um, it it was important for me to have some boundaries up because people who are not educated about indigenous issues sometimes will say things that they don't even they they have no intention of it being cutting you. Um, but it can be really cutting when people say things about um, the land or about your culture when they're um, when they learn that you're native or something like that, that that you they're just they just hurt. And the microaggressions, I guess, is the what I'm describing. And so there was a little bit of that that I was it was frustrating to have to experience that and know that nobody else around me was experiencing that because also I did not meet another black or indigenous person of color for like weeks. And then um, even after that trail right now, right on the trail. Yeah. 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 Not in law school. We we transitioned Um, from law school. That's an issue as well, but that's a different issue. But um, yeah, I, for weeks on the trail. And so I was feeling very kind of isolated in that sense on the trail and not really having, because I didn't have connectivity, I couldn't like call someone up and be like, you'll never believe what this person just said to me. It was so rude, you know, whatever. And so I was really having to just process that stuff a lot, which is time consuming and energy consuming, which is an issue when you don't have a lot of energy uh, because you're spending it all on just getting yourself from A to B. So emotionally, that was definitely the hardest. And then, and then spiritually, what I kind of described is just those days where I just was really feeling the grief of some of the places that I was going through as far as the history of them. So there were all sorts of different tough scenarios and challenges. Um, and I, 
I got help through all of them. You know, I, I met people that uh, restored my faith in humanity as far as just understanding and bringing compassion to my frustrations. I met uh, people who gave me leukotape, and I met people who were just willing to sit in those hard truths with me. So, yeah, the, the people made them better. Circling back to your comment about Black, Indigenous, people of color on the trail. So it sounds like at, at some point in the in the hike, you did come across other people in in one of those groups. Mm-hmm. Not that I think you probably you guys probably did, but it would have been interesting f- to compare notes and like, are you hearing the same stuff that I'm hearing being out here yeah. on the trail, essentially by yourself? Well, a lot of that has actually been done after I finished because I've had really cool opportunities like this one to um, get my voice out there a little bit and talk about my experience. And so through that, I've connected with a lot of other BIPOC um, or, you know, other minorities who have had very similar experiences. And we have talked about like how awesome it would be to just do like a BIPOC uh, through hike or uh, a um, even just like a little backpacking trip or something like that. Because the relief and empowerment from those scenarios comes from connecting with other people who are on your team. Um, And that's not just BIPOC, but also allies and just people who are really striving to understand. And that's what makes it feel better. And that's what makes us feel empowered. Um, And so I have had the pleasure of connecting with so many people who have had those experiences at this point, which is, which is awesome. And it's so much fun. And I love it. And, but even when we were outside of towns and, you know, you, you know, you're coming up on a town cause you'll see day hikers or bikers or runners. And like there were, I was to the point at some points where, um, like if somebody ran by me who looked native, I was just wanting to be like, Hey, <laughs> like, are, are you native? Like, can we talk? And, um, that, you know, I don't think people would respond well to that. So I, didn't. <laughs> but I just kind of, like, I was craving that. Mm-hmm. the the connection the bonding the yeah the knowing the knowing like together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I i guess i i wanted to dig into that a little bit more just in terms of like what kind of things were you hearing out there were people just making a point of oh i you're the only indigenous person that i've seen out here or you're the only person of of color or you're the only the only the only or that kind of stuff or? Um, yeah, I think it comes in different ways. And a lot of it was just me making observations. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm an observer. And so, um, just observing the fact that we, our history is erased on trail signs, um, was a big one for me. I spoke to a couple, I don't, don't mean this as a stereotype, but I did speak to a couple older white gentlemen who um, they, as I was talking about what they asked what I do and I was talking about it and they kept using Indian, you know, oh, oh, well, I know this about Indians and kind of mansplaining to me about what the, you know, what it's like to be Indian. And, um, and that bothered me a little bit um, just because I, 
used different terminology throughout, like in my own talking about the conversation throughout the conversation. And they just weren't really picking up on that. And, and I understand that that's kind of a generational thing, but just little things like that. And there is some, uh, especially people who I think don't really hike that much. It was not so much about me, me being native, but uh, more about me being a woman of, of like, oh, you're doing that alone. You're not, you know, you're not taking anybody with you to protect you or whatever, which I know is something women get a lot. And then just people like really just uh, watching people disrespect the land was really hard for me as far as like, uh, just I was picking up any litter that I was seeing along the way, which, you know, sometimes is an accident, but some people are deliberate about it, which is awful. Um, and then, uh, just when people talk about, tell stories that where it's obviously obvious that they're not respecting the resources or the wildlife or, or whatever, you know, that's, I think a big difference in the way that indigenous peoples tend to view land and, and those natural resources versus how, the settler colonial culture mm-hmm. and takes a look at um, that, the sor- same sorts of things. So it's just a different view and it's just a different idea of um, what that space is for and what that space is. So, yeah, it was it's just hard. Uh, and that, those are hard things to explain to people, right? Yeah. When you're, like, you know, you're walking with someone and you, you maybe you'll never see them again, or maybe you will, you don't want to be like, well, actually, if you <laughs> let me tell you for the next three hours about, you know, indigenous ideas of blah, 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 blah. And some people are there for it. And some people do want to are, are so interested and want to learn. But some people are like, like, what are you talking about? You know, I just want to, I just want to hike or whatever. So yeah. Have you take what have you taken from the hike and from what you've found out, learned about yourself during the hike back into this world? I think really for me it was reconnecting with that openness and that peace. Because a big part of the hike for me was healing myself from the law school experience, which any person of color who has gone through an institution, I would say, especially grad school, is not leaving that place without a fair bit of trauma if they're, uh, if they're listening. <laughs> and so coming out of that experience, that changed me so much where I really felt like I had changed through law school, Be mostly, I guess, to simplify it, like, it just took my joy away, where I just became this person who because there's this message in law school that to succeed at this profession, you have to be hard and you have to be, uh, you know, a ball buster and, and you can't show weakness and you can't show any um, amount of uncertainty because it will be read as ignorance and then you're stupid and then you're written off and you'll never ha- have a job and you'll live on the street forever. You know, so um, that's very like, dire. Yeah, it's it's horrible. Um, so I had kind of like this shell and, and this um, prickliness to me, I guess, which is kind of part of, I guess, maybe my personality throughout all of life. But it also was compounded by law school because I that's who I kind of had to be to survive that place. And, um, and I didn't get to be like this really bubbly, fun person that I felt like I was before. And so it kind of the trail, I think, helped me recenter as far as um, not 
not totally letting that part go, but just keeping helping me, giving me time to sort through what are the good parts of that and what kind of boundaries did I learn that will help me in my professional life moving forward? And what of that like protectiveness can I drop that's actually a detriment to my life, whether it be in my relationships or you know, my work life or whatever. And then what element of like, how can I create a safe place for that, like bubbly part of my personality and that part that like loves to connect with people and loves to just ask people questions and be curious about life and, um, and share about my own life. How can I create a safe place for that to kind of come back, but also not, um, get me into trouble as far as getting hurt from people making microaggressions or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I think that's, what I'm moving back into my life with is just better balance and a better understanding of these different parts of myself and when it's time to unleash some of them and when it's time to rein them in and, and just kind of enjoy again. Nice. Yeah. Does that make you feel calmer? Mm. Definitely calmer, definitely more confident. And I think these are also just things that come with age. You know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to I'm, I turned 29 in June. And I've heard like 30s are good, but 40s are where it's at. And it just keeps getting better. And so I think, like, maybe it accelerated that, like, little pieces of wisdom, or just my um, emotional intelligence or whatever, even a little bit more, because uh, yeah, all of those good things that come with age, um, as far as I understand, just being more comfortable with yourself and um, appreciating yourself more and appreci- being able to appreciate others more and, and just to go a little bit deeper. Um, I think all of those came back to me or came to me as new skills or I was reminded that it's, you know, it's okay to indulge in that. And, and so, yeah, definitely calmer. It's It's okay to be that. Yeah, you can just be. You can you can swim naked in a stream up at 10,000 feet if you want, and it doesn't matter how you look. And you can just walk and, you know, be so smelly and dirty and not have shaved your legs for a month and a half, even though you've only been on trail for a month. And that's... <laughs> you were prepping for the trail. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, just to be is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, and I will definitely attest for you that the the age. I think you nailed the decades very well. Yeah, I'm really excited. I got my first gray hair in law school (laughs) and they're just going to keep coming. And then people will actually take seriously my ideas and opinions and things that I say. So yeah, I'm I'm stoked on it. (laughs) I'm I'm debating if I should say this or not. As a woman, it's probably always going to be a little bit of a struggle. (laughs) What terrible news. I had no idea. <laughs> this is the first I'm hearing it's of it. It's a shocker. I know. <laughs> is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should? That's a good question. Um, food? Perfect. Yeah. What did you, what did you eat out there? What, what did you decide to eat out there? And, and did it last for the whole trail or did you change? Um, a little bit of both. Um, so I eat mostly a vegan diet when I'm off trail and I wanted to 
get that. I wanted to continue that as much as possible. The thing that I struggled with was um, not having fresh food all the time because most of what I'm usually eating is salads and carrots. And, you know, I have, I join, I have like, I'm part of a community garden and so I get fresh veggies every week. And so it was really hard to adjust to just eating staples and, um, you know, things with preservatives in them. And I try to stay away from it as much as possible. But also like when you're out there, you get so hungry that it's like, I will eat anything right now. And that's fine. The thing that I loved eating and never got tired of was the mashed potatoes, like the instant mashed potatoes. I love mashed potatoes and I could eat those all day, every day. Um, those were not vegan, but I was like, nah, I'm doing it. (laughs) Um, so I had a lot of mashed potatoes, a lot of peanut butter and with tortillas and, um, fruit snacks because I could pretend that it was almost like it was something fresh. It was almost real. Uh, Yes, exactly. Now, when you say fruit snacks, what does that mean for you? Um, so my mom would bring me like the organic bunny ones. I think they're called like Amy's or something that are made from fruit juice, but there were a few towns that when I was out of those, they didn't have like a natural grocers. And so it was like the Mott's ones or like, you know, the Disney princess ones that taste like (laughs) you're actually eating crayons. (laughs) So it just depended. Um, And then when I would go to town, the first thing that I ever wanted was French fries. Obviously, potatoes are a big theme in my life. But yeah, I always wanted French fries and then just whatever uh, vegetarian or vegan thing I could find in, in a town. What were you doing for protein? Um, lots of peanut butter, lots of nuts. Um, and then I took in the beginning, I took some like protein shaky type things, but, um, you know, if you don't have like a, the shaker or a blender, it's just like, you're just downing chalk. And so, um, that didn't last very long. I wasn't into that. Did you have a stove with you or not? Yeah, I took a jet foil. That was one of my older pieces of equipment that if I, but it just didn't make sense to me to drop, you know, what is it, 300 bucks or so on a a light, lighter weight stove. And so I kind of did like a hybrid between ultralight gear and not ultralight gear. Um, My back, uh, my sleeping bag was ultralight. And my tent was ultralight, but then my stove was just a jet boil that I've had for like eight years or something, which worked great. And then uh, my backpack was an Osprey, um, just, you know, a normal one. And so, yeah, I did have a stove and that was that was clutch because, oh, I also took chai, um, like powder, chai powder that you can make tea out of. And that was awesome because I just don't like being cold. So or if I am cold, I like to you know, have a nice warm drink. So I took chai, which was nice. What would you do differently for the next trail? As far as food or just anything? Well, uh, let's start with food and then we'll evolve from there. Um, I would do a little bit more research and preparation as far as just because I am um, trying to do the vegan thing. Um, Silverton had so few vegan options. And so the last like four days between Silverton and Durango, I was just eating oatmeal because they, it was like oatmeal and peanut butter. Um, 
because they didn't have, they didn't even have the good potatoes that weren't vegan. And so that was a really hard. So if I was going to a really rural small town where I was going to stop for a resupply, I would send myself food because uh, they, their options were just so limited that it didn't really work for me. So that's, I would say that's the main thing really just in general, other than starting with the bigger Sawyer squeeze that I would try to do. Yeah, I think that's really the the main thing. Oh, and I would take leukotape from the beginning. <laughs> the toe was awful. Yeah. Yeah, now you know how to fix your toe. Like yes. there's no going back. Yes. Or have it amputated before my next hike. That's probably <laughs> That that seems a little extreme, but I don't know. It's all relative. You can still walk with four toes. You're good. Exactly. Yeah. Where can people find you if they have questions for you, either about your hike or some of the other things that we've talked about as well? Yeah. Um, so I'm on Instagram. That's really my main platform. Um, and that is at Blackwater Soul. Um, my last name is Blackwater and then it's S-O-U-L. So at Blackwater Soul is my Instagram. And I don't really do the Facebook thing much. I think I have an account, but I never get on it. And then um, I'm on Twitter as well under the same handle as my Instagram. Okay, perfect. For you, when you think back on the trail and your experiences on the trail, what are a few of your favorite memories of that experience? Mm, I think just like getting to a couple of the really nice views and just sitting for a minute and or for an hour and just just like feeling so much appreciation and just being so in awe that I get to be in those places that I have the time and the health and the ability to get myself to those places and, um, and that I just get to like, that is my life for a, an hour of that day is just to like sit in one of the most beautiful places on the entire planet and just to breathe and kind of go like, yeah, this is, this is why I'm here. Like this is just to exist in beauty, it, you know, in, um, Navajo culture, we have, uh, one of our words is hojon and it's, um, kind of like this idea of the balance of life, but it's walking in beauty is a hojo. And that's what we're really always striving to do, whether we're going through difficult times or whether we are on top of the world. We are just always trying to walk in beauty with respect and compassion and resilience and and just everything that to me embodies Native America, but um, you know, just anybody who's just trying to be better and anybody who's trying to move through the world with love and compassion. And, and so those moments that I just, you know, my, our word, as I said, is hojol. Like, that's how I know how to describe it. Those moments on the walk were my favorite. Do you, I mean, you talked about the Tahoe Rim Trail and stuff like that. Do you mm-hmm. have a plan for when those might happen? Or are they just in the future sometime? Yeah, definitely in the future. Um, I relocated to California after the hike, actually. And so I don't know if that's going to be kind of a spur of the moment, like, okay, I have 10 days, and I'm going to make this happen, or whether that's going to be something that I have to plan out a little bit longer. 
right now, unfortunately, like my entire brain is focused on passing the bar exam. And so I'm like salivating over watching some of my friends do these incredible trails. But yeah, it's unfortunately not going to happen for me anytime soon. But I'm really, really excited to just explore this area. I've done a little bit of hiking in this area since I moved here. And yeah, just to get to know different ancestral homelands and get cozy with them. I'm stoked on that. That sounds pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I am so excited to one day listen to the podcast where you talk about your first through hike. I know. That is going to be such a very cool episode and such a cool moment. Yeah. After sort of 2020, everybody's like, so 2021, 2021? I'm like, I I just don't see it. I yeah, mean, not the least of which could be still pandemic. But after the hit that sort of my bank account and time and everything that's taken for this year, it's sort yeah. of like, I just don't see 2021 happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but in lieu of that, I've basically said, okay, I'm going to give myself within the next five years. Yeah, to that's do it. totally reasonable. I mean, the CT was something that I could do. And I think a lot of people, because their plans were disrupted, they could kind of pivot and do it on a whim. And so in that way, it's an argument for like, maybe, maybe a smaller one would help give you the confidence for the PCT. But also, it sounds like that's like what you're manifesting. And that's what you want to do. And so (laughs) Like when it's time, I think you'll, you know, the skies will open up and you'll just do it and crush it. So I'm really excited to hear about it. I think, um, I think it's going to be a really, really special journey for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, it's funny. I, I admit this to few people, but I will admit that, you know, sort of like what you had before going out onto the Colorado trail there were nerves. There was, oh right. shit, like what, what did I sign myself up for? What about if I get out there and I hate it? Yeah. What about if I get out there and I have blisters galore? What about if it's painful? Like all of the manifestations of that. Yeah. And so when the pandemic happened and everything closed down, um, cause I was supposed to start the trail at the beginning of April. Okay. It was right at the beginning of everything when we didn't know what was going on really. And I have to admit, like, as much as I wanted to do it, having the pandemic, which was out of my control, say, you can't do it, or you shouldn't do it. There was a little bit of relief there. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I feel that. I don't think that that should be a bad thing to admit, because um, up until maybe like the second, I remember this in China, which was my first like big one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember probably up until the second or third week, I was still hoping that something would happen that would kind of like relieve me of this obligation that I felt to go forward with it. And I felt that a little bit on this one, too, but maybe a little bit less. And I actually like hoped for that because I wanted something that would where I could tell the story and people would go like, oh, well, that's a bummer. But, you know, that's understandable as opposed to just me having to say like, yeah, I chickened out because it's like terrifying and I'm scared shitless. But it didn't come and it didn't come. And then something flipped at some point in me. 
And I remember writing in my journal when I was in China, we were probably like halfway through or something and just saying like, it's crazy to me to think that I felt that way at the beginning, because at that point, I like, I would have crawled to the end if I had to, you know, there was nothing that could have happened other than my own death or, you know, me breaking a leg or something that would have kept me from finishing it because I just was I guess I accepted it as like, this is my story now. And like, this is what I'm going to do. And I want this to be a part of me. And so I don't think that it's like, shameful to admit that that's part of you, because that's just the beginning of your story. And then after it flips, that'll be such an interesting part of your story to be like, yeah, I felt this way. And then I felt completely different. And this is what happened to get me to that point or whatever. So yeah, I I think you should own that. And because everybody feels that whether they admit it or not. And that's that toxic shit that I'm talking about that happens in law school that I saw a little bit of on the trail as well, where people are like, you know, puffing their chest. And I just I don't think there's a place for it because everyone's scared, no matter what they say, there's a little bit of fear about one thing or another. So yeah, I think that to um, own that would be really empowering for a lot of people who feel similarly, whether they'll say it out loud or not. Yeah. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. It's important. I think that is going to be how I'm going to end the episode. (laughs) Thank you for that beautiful quote. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, uh, like that's on one level, I think that's maybe I'm a little afraid of, you know, that, that it won't just be the one it'll be constantly looking for the next and the next and the next. And yeah. It'll yeah, I'll research that original high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it comes down to appreciation. Just soaking in. I remember the feeling when I'm on those mountaintops, when I'm like feeling that hojol, just wanting to like bottle it and take it with you. And like just wanting to feel every last drop of it and not waste any of it so that you can come back to life, like knowing that at one point you were just like, so full of that. And so if I think for me also, it reminded me a little bit that I need to also like figure out how to incorporate more of that into my life. Because if that's the only place that I'm getting it is when I'm like, you know, far, far away from civilization, then that means that a a significant portion of my life Mm -hmm. is not going to have um, that kind of joy in it. And so it's definitely made me more intentional coming back to you about like, where am I finding my joy? And where do I feel balanced? And where do I and where in my life can I insert that whole feeling and, and how do I do it? And so I think with a little bit of strategy, um, we can have that elsewhere. But yeah, I think it'll also ruin your life. But it, <laughs> it's going to be good. <laughs> And links for Dara's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Dara for sharing her stories from the trail and Maya Wynn for the use of the song Try Again. On next week's episode, I'll be talking with Sam Lee. 
known on trail as Ginger Snap, about her 2012 Appalachian Trail thru-hike. I hope that this conversation, these conversations, inspire you to get out there and have a few hiker trash moments of your own. I'll see you on the trail. <laughs> <laughs>